is she? Shana, the Jungle Queen. Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and this is episode 16 of Shana Showcase, a podcast devoted to indexing the significant solo appearances of Marvel Comics' greatest Jungle Queen, Shanna the She-Devil. This time out, I'll be recapping the first two chapters of a Shanna adventure, 13 years in the making. When last we saw Shanna, she had just finished up a great 10-part serial in Marvel Comics Presents, crafted by Gerard Jones and Paul Gulacy. From there, she immediately found herself in John Byrne's Namor title, helping the Sea King battle a Super Scroll in the Savage Land. Uh, I thought about covering that story here, but uh, decided against it, at least for now. Shanna's part is small in that story, uh, though it is it's there where she's reunited with her oafish husband, Kazar. The story I'm beginning coverage of this time ran through late issues of the anthology title Marvel Fanfare. This four-part serial marked the return to the character, kind of, of the late great writer Steve Gerber whose association with Shanna dates back to her very first appearance. Now, I say kind of because this story, at least the first three chapters, the story was scripted back in 1978 when Gerber was still guiding the adventures of the Jungle Queen. Uh, But for some reason, the story got shelved after only the first chapter even got to the pencils stage. The script and the first chapter pencils by Carmen Infantino was unearthed at some point by Marvel Fanfare editor Al Milgram, who uh, commissioned the completion of the artwork by Brett Blevins and Tony DeZuniga, and a new fourth chapter script from Gerber himself. Now, as I said, Marvel Fanfare was a bi-monthly anthology title running sometimes one-off stories, sometimes a multi-part serial like this Shanna story. It was printed on slick paper, and, and in 1991, the time that these issues I'm covering came out, uh, it was going for $2.25 a pop. That's really expensive. Uh, now, I have a few issues of this title, uh, and honestly, it seems to run, for the most part, inventory-type stories, uh, leftovers from canceled series, or series that were never to be. And I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, this is the category that these Shanna stories fall into. Uh, but it seems like the kind of stuff that may not ever end up being worth that very hefty cover price. Uh, nothing I've read in fanfare has ever really knocked me out. Uh, and that includes this Shanna story. I've, I've read better things in Marvel Comics Presents, though that may have been even a worse value to readers, because at $1.25 an issue, uh, that came out bi-weekly. <laughs> anyway, I will tell you that uh, this, this isn't my favorite Shanna story, but it's, it, it's worth covering on this show. So Marvel Fanfare, number 56, cover dated April 1991, story called Crimes of Pride. It's written by Steve Gerber, penciled back in 1978 by Carmen Infantino, inked at some point more recent than that by Brett Blevins, lettered by Diana Albers, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Al Milgram. Cover painting is by Joe Chiodo, uh, and shows Shanna looking 
back at us over her shoulder, wrapped in a slithery friend. This cover is done in kind of a classical, photorealistic style, uh, but Chiodo, who does all four covers for this run, changes styles throughout the four covers, uh, and I'll talk more about that when I discuss the next issue. Now, just a couple of notes before I begin the recap here. Uh, first, continuity-wise, the story occurs after Shanna's short-lived solo series, and after the string of appearances she made in various titles, cleaning up the loose ends from her series. There were stories in Daredevil, Marvel 2-in-1, a couple of issues of the black-and-white magazine Savage Tales, uh, all of these were covered on previous episodes of Shanna Showcase, so I encourage you to check those out either on iTunes, Google Play, or by visiting my blog, imthegun.blogspot.com, which collects all my comics recap output. I imagine this story happening around the same time as the Shanna solo backup feature in the black and white Rampaging Hulk title published in June 1978 as a couple of those story elements are repeated here including Shanna in therapy, her in-home jungle room, and an odd relationship with a uh, with a large python. So this story occurs after those earlier appearances but before hooking up with that boar Kazar on a permanent basis in the Kazar the Savage title from the from the early 80s. And secondly, Carmen Infantino. Now, just like every other comic fan, I love lots of Carmen Infantino's work. His Silver Age work, especially on The Flash and things like Adam Strange, Batman, it's those are definitive. And when he returned to The Flash in the early 80s for another 50 plus issue run, uh, I actually really like that too, though I think I'm part of a smaller crowd there. This later work in The Flash is a little looser, the character's thicker, a bit bulkier, and when The Flash turns on the speed, the way those speed lines follow him around like they, like they have weight, they're like a mile-long pink and yellow beach towel blowing in the wind. Uh, it looks a lot better than I just described it. <laughs> Uh, has a certain power in Fantino's Flash work in the 80s. It's a different kind of Infantino magic for the Flash. Uh, but in between Flash stints during the late 70s, the wilderness years uh, at Marvel, the work Infantino did, uh, I don't find as appealing. And the Infantino Blevins team on this story doesn't do anything to change my opinion. <laughs> but the story. Open uh, at night on a Malibu beach, Shanna, dressed in her leopard skin three-piece, is, is lost in thought. She's thinking on her ongoing inner conflict between her civilized persona and uh, the wild woman within. She suddenly feels the wildness take her over. She runs to, and then right through, a small bonfire beach party, basically kicking sand in the face of a this real bruiser type, right out of 70s dude central casting named <laughs> Dirk Mantooth. He didn't like this interruption very much and chases Shanna down, but uh, he soon wishes he hadn't. After a real ugly looking tussle, Shanna just knocks the guy out cold. This really impresses a couple of young ladies in the party who catch up to Shanna, who seems to have just woken up from a dream. 
She has no recollection of pummeling Dirk Mantooth, and uh, no one seems too concerned about it. So she gives the two girls a two-panel capsule origin story, tells them to look her up in the book when they say they'd want to get together with her sometime. Then she makes her way in her red beetle car back to her San Pedro bungalow. When she arrives, she finds a note taped to her door. Like Like us, you are different. different. We request the pleasure of your company at a meeting to discuss our mutual interests. Wednesday, 8 p.m., Suite 1144 Beverly Palms Hotel. Signed, The Pride. Her interest piqued, she decides to make the meeting. The following evening, after her visit to the therapist... Then she retires to her bedroom, which she's decked out like a jungle, grass, tropical plants, and all, and uh, sleeps in the tight embrace of her giant python, Ananta. Yeah, she's got issues. So next day, she meets with her therapist, dressed in the exact opposite manner than she was the night before. In public, she's garbed neck to toe in an ugly brown wrap that makes Mrs. Roper look like Millie the Model. Uh, It's not well drawn, either. Shanna relates the previous evening's activity and her blackout. At a loss for explanation for the episode, Dr. Betts convinces Shanna to think on the meaning of her continued wearing of the skin of a fallen leopard. Reporting directly to her hotel suite meeting after her appointment, Shanna is greeted by three men. Martin Friendly, who looks like... uh, Colonel Sanders in mourning, wearing a black suit instead of white. Slam Sanders, a lounging cowboy who looks like vigilante Greg Saunders if he let himself go. And Kinsey Gardner, a pretty nondescript blonde man who, as drawn by Carmen Infantino, could be in early 80s Barry Allen. Turns out these men are not the pride, but uh, were themselves summoned by said group. The only thing linking these men are their association with the television industry. Martin Friend is a writer, Slam Sanders is a former actor, and uh, Kinsey Gardner is a programmer. They don't appear to get along very well. Uh, None of them really come across as great people. And uh, Martin Friend talks in kind of industry lingo, which is especially annoying. Shanna sticks out like a sore thumb in this collection of goons. Uh, But just then, the pride enters, and they are literally named two men and one woman with human bodies and lion, or lioness, heads. There's a male with a black body and a white head, who seems to be the leader, an all-brown big bruiser and the lioness. The artwork makes it unclear at this point whether these are skin-tight costumes and lion masks, or whether they have furry bodies and actual lion heads. The lion heads aren't very expressive, and uh, they're never drawn with their mouths open, so that makes me think mask, but it's it's really hard to tell. Well, they come in and throw their weight around and, and tell the group what they have in common. All four are at a crossroads in their life and seek something more. And they are all capable of murder. 
At the sound of that word, Shanna's ready to check out. She knocks the big brown lion aside and begins to storm out when she's hit by a brain bolt from the lead lion. This stupefies Shanna while the lion leader explains what's offered in return for a murder. For Martin Friend, the Colonel Sanders guy, the pride can help them tap into his inner creativity. For Kinsey Gardner, the Barry Allen guy, they can augment his charisma, the lack of which has held him back in his career. And for Slam Sanders, the vigilante guy, they can kickstart a political career. And for Shanna, they can help control the warring aspects of her nature. Upon hearing this, she finally resists the lion's control, saying that that's something she can only do for herself. She tackles the lion, but to everyone's surprise, they both seem to disappear in a flash of light. But what has really happened is that the lion has taken Shanna to what he calls the jungle of the mind. And there's the suggestion of vegetation all around them, but this is purely a mental realm. Shanna's suddenly in her leopard fighting togs. Uh, this is either how she truly sees herself, or perhaps how she's perceived by the pride. Uh, but for being in such a weird, ethereal place, they just confront each other physically in a really, in another really ugly fight scene. Thankfully, not as long as the one on the beach. And when I say ugly, I'm not necessarily meaning the appearance of the figures. Shanna doesn't have to be depicted drop dead, uh, although that's the way it usually goes. Um, it's just sloppy line work barely delineated features and bad anatomy. I'm not laying this all at the feet of Inventino. Blevins was brought in to clean it up, uh, but the styles of the two artists are not, not a good match. In a previous page, when the three men called to the meeting are listening to their offer, each gets a panel headshot, and their faces are like grotesque masks and I guess that could be quite an effective way for these Hollywood creatures to be drawn, but uh, it doesn't help make for a pleasurable reading experience. Anyway, Shanna fights off the lion in the mental jungle, uh, but as she climbs away through these trees, the jungle scape gives way, and she finds herself falling through dozens of giant eyes. Back in the hotel room, the lion leader is there with the gathered group, and all are looking at the catatonic body of Shanna. The price, the lion says, of coming in physical contact with himself. And you know, it's been hard knowing just how seriously to take this group, the pride. They come in looking all ridiculous, but considering how easily a competent, capable heroine like Shanna is handled here, I don't know. The Lion King moves on next to business, asking in the last panel of the story, shall we get on with our mayhem? And we will be getting on with it next in the pages of Marvel Fanfare number 57. <laughs> Thank you. 
Marvel Fanfare number 57 is cover dated June 1991. The Shanna story is called Murder by Friend. And it's written by Gerber, lettered by Jim Novak, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Milgram. The artwork is strangely credited to A. Novice, uh, but in the inside front cover's editorial, Milgram lets the leopard out of the bag and reveals that Brett Blevins drew this chapter. I guess whenever Milgram discovered the script to this serial with chapter one having completed pencils, he turned to Blevins to finish up the chapter and then proceed to illustrate the rest of the scripts. Well, between Blevins' apparently slow work pace and the eventual publication of the second chapter, uh, Blevins felt his work had evolved, and he was unhappy with the work in chapter two, so asked his name to be removed, which it was removed at least from the credit box, but <laughs> Milgram just dispels the mystery of a novice right away. Covers by Joe Chiodo, and uh, this time around Chiodo employs a, a different illustration style. It's a, it's a painted cover, and the subject matter is very similar, Shanna and a snake, but the style is a little less classical, a little more pop brighter color, and figures a little more exaggerated, rounder, bigger eyes. Almost an airbrushed quality to it. So, different from the first cover, but equally effective. Story picks right up where the last one left off, with uh, the group in the hotel suite, the three members of the Pride, and their invitees, Martin Friend, Slam Sanders, and Kinsey Gardner, surrounding a writhing Shanna victim to the pride leader's mental attack. The lion threatens the others with a similar fate should they make the same mistake and defy the pride. The offer still stands, however. They offer life improvement for the TV professionals in exchange for one murder. The lion tells them that a member of the pride will accompany each of them, acting as ally and protector, Martin Friend, the morning Colonel Sanders, leaves the hotel accompanied by the lioness. He's uncomfortable with the whole situation, sweating profusely, but uh, wonders why they aren't a spectacle, a man walking side by side with a human lion. His protector explains that the pride can wander around completely unnoticed if they wish it. Meanwhile, Shanna wakes up in a hospital bed, restrained. Apparently a maid found Shanna in the hotel suite, abandoned, and called an ambulance. A card for Shanna's therapist, Dr. Betts, was found on her person, so it's Dr. Betts who greets her in the hospital. Shanna tries to explain the situation with the pride, but the doctor has her doubts. She's troubled by these blackouts Shanna's been having not understanding that this situation, this current situation, is a little bit different. Betts is more concerned with the fact that the leopard skin costume was found underneath her giant drab moo-moo. Increasingly desperate to stop the impending murders, Shanna busts her bonds, claiming she can't have these potential murders on her conscience too, she says. Too many have died because she just wasn't there 
when she should have been, and she rattles off names from her past, her father, Jakuna Singh, a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent and friend from her solo series days, and Ina and Beery, her deceased leopard companions. She sees the opportunity to stop the Pride scheme as a way to atone for the deaths in her past, and yelling over her shoulder that she'll see Dr. Betts at their regular Friday session, Shanna bursts through the seven-story window of the hospital, pulling away her little hospital gown, revealing her preferred pelt costume, and makes her way rooftop to rooftop back to the hotel to pick up her car, which I think is a nice touch by Gerber. You could expect in a typical superhero story for the hero to just dive into the next phase of the adventure, but Shanna, she needs to regroup. She needs to rest. She needs a shower. And she needs to pick up her sweet ride. Her rest the next morning is interrupted by a knock at the door, and there are the two young girls from the beach at the beginning of the last chapter, Dina and Chris, making good on their promise to look Shanna up. She good-naturedly lets them in, but uh, puts them right to work. Of the three potential killers, Shanna targets Martin Friend first. Knowing he's a TV writer, Shanna asks the girls to find the phone number of the Writers Guild while she takes a shower. Hitting a kind of brick wall with the guild, someone there suggests giving Friend's agent a call. And getting the info, Shanna rushes out, telling the girls that they'll have to leave and they'll have to pick up some other time. Now, I wonder if these characters were introduced to give Shanna a new supporting cast. Uh, the old one, as we've seen, uh, was killed off. I really don't know the intention of these scripts, uh, whether they were the first couple of issues of a solo series revival. You know, 17 pages, the length of these fanfare stories, was the typical length of a standard Marvel comic back in 1978. Or uh, maybe Shanna was slated to get a tryout in Marvel Spotlight or Marvel Premiere, a title like that. Uh, but to have three issues in production and the germ of a supporting cast, uh, something must have been up. Anyway, Shanna gets stonewalled at the agent's office by the agent's secretary until the sleazy agent himself gets a load of the curvy redhead and the pink frilly number in the waiting room and escorts Shanna right into his office. He gets a little handsy, but uh, Shanna gets physical right away, demanding the identity of anyone Martin Friend might want to kill. Uh, besides everyone else in the TV industry, the only name that uh, the agent can come up with is Ginny Jenkins, Friend's former protege. They work together on a show called The Love Trawler, which I guess was the Marvel Universe's version of Love Boat. Jenkins had recently become a big success writing a half-hour sitcom series taking place in a feminist clinic. I'm not sure if this was referencing some actual show. Uh, but anyway, Friend has resented Ginny's success, making her a, a potential target. Shanna makes her way to the TV studio where Ginny Jenkins works, and after getting nowhere at the guardhouse, strips to the leopard skins once again and uh, leaps the wall. 
And it's funny, making her way through the back lot uh, with all manner of strangely dressed characters, aliens, monsters, clowns, Shanna doesn't get a second look. Meanwhile, Ginny Jenkins is currently, and coincidentally, entertaining visitor Martin Friend, who is there to murder her under the watchful eye of the lioness, but uh, who pretends to be there asking for a job. Ginny refuses, saying Friend is just not right for her feminist clinic comedy, and offers to take him out to lunch instead. Martin courteously begins pushing her wheelchair toward the door, but suddenly dumps her on the ground, grabs an Emmy from a bookcase, and sends it crashing down on her head. Shanna bursts through the door just then, but it's too late. Martin panics, looking toward the lioness for protection, but the cat is nowhere to be seen. Shanna snatches the Emmy away from the killer and punches him out. Continues to hammer on him, but is stopped by the voice of... Ginny Jenkins. No one can believe she's still alive. Friend runs out of the room, and Shanna is suspicious, citing the blood on the Emmy and on the carpet. Her jungle experience, she says, has taught her never to mistake a wounded animal for a dead one. She doesn't fully understand what has happened here, the miraculous survival of the bludgeon TV writer, but in the last panel of the story, she vows to change that. The uh, artwork in this chapter made the story easier to digest. I don't see it as embarrassing enough to take your name off it, but I didn't draw it. <laughs> I see it as a drastic improvement over what had come before. The pride we see is now a threat to be taken seriously. Blevins leaves no doubt that these are actual lion's heads with, with a much more realistic depiction of the feline features and and the way they can inspire such a savage murder, someone being bludgeoned to death by an award statue. But was it murder? Hmm, we'll have to find out next time. The script I find somewhat interesting too, uh, with its unsympathetic take on Hollywood, you know, TV in particular, really seems like it, the work of an industry insider. I'm not sure if Gerber worked in television, I didn't see that referenced in his Wikipedia bio. Uh, the Hollywood side of the story I could almost see coming from the pen of someone like Mark Evanier, longtime TV writer, uh, but the psychological slant to the story, I'd say, is pure Steve Gerber. So, what is the pride up to? We will have to find out next episode. I'll be putting some images from this issue on the blog. I'm thegun.blogspot.com, and there you'll find some contact info should you have anything to add about Shanna, the work of Steve Gerber, Common Infantino, Brett Blevins, or Marvel Fanfare. Did any classic story ever come out of this title? Okay, that's all I've got for this episode, so until next time, see you on the Savannah.